1: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller.
2: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg
1: Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. We want to go deep into technology, Kriti, because, I mean, tech is you know, just been a leader for this market for as long as I can remember almost. And my question is, as we come out of this, is tech going to be a leader going forward as a sector? We had some weak numbers, or weaker than expected numbers, I guess we would say, across the tech sector over this past earnings period. So let's th- dive deep into tech. Let's round table this, and we're gonna do it for a couple of segments here. Dan Ives, Senior Equity Analyst at Wedbush Securities, uh, joins us here in very casual attire, I will point out. Uh, and Mandeep Singh, a Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Tech Analyst. Uh, they're both joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, which is good, so we can just kind of bat it around <laughs> for a while. So, Dan, you've been in this business a long time, a sell-side analyst. You've been one of the leading voices in uh, promoting technology on Wall Street. How do you think about this tech sector going forward? I mean, over the last, I would say, since the great financial crisis, it's been a leader in this marketplace in terms of uh, stock performance. How about the next 10 years?
3: Look, I think the hypergrowth growth story in tech, I mean, the clock struck midnight. And I think that's why you're seeing layoffs from Amazon to Meta and others. But my view is that you're gonna have trillions spent in what I view as the fourth industrial revolution. And that's not ending because of this recession next three to six months. So my view is that, especially on high-quality tech, this is more of a fourth, fifth inning rather than the eighth, ninth inning in terms of tech. And I think that's why we've been bullish on it, you know, even as we go, you know, into year end into to two thousand twenty-three in terms of where we are in the cycle.
4: Mindy, pop on in here because I think when I look at tech, I mean, it's such a broad. Sector Naturally, we think of uh, the Metas, the Amazons, the Microsofts, but then there's kind of this other lens of chips, and it feels like chips are kind of this magnified response of tech, and you have the chip equipment makers, which are an even bigger magnified response. Are all of these spheres of tech on the same page right now?
5: Well, so think of, you know, where the spend is going when it comes to capex so all these companies you mentioned meta amazon alphabet they're spending you know 30 40 billion dollars 50 billion dollars a year on capex where is that spend going in terms of building data center in fact nvidia like you look at their data center growth they have gone from almost nothing to 15 billion dollar run rate in a span of five years that's phenomenal for a chip company and so that gives you a sense of where the next leg of investments will be, is it will be in AI and you know, building cloud capacity and, and chips is at the forefront. That's why there is so much geopolitical tension around chips, you know, the China US aspect of it. And I think you just can't take that out of the equation, even if we are in a downturn. When we come out of it, the focal point will still be semiconductors, AI, machine learning, cloud. These are the trends.
1: So you you have job security is what you're telling me. I hope so. All right. Otherwise hey Dan, <laughs> you know, talk to us. You know, I need to get into the, this story here. This whole Elon Musk Twitter thing. I'd love to get your opinion here because you've been on top of the Tesla story since day one. Elon Musk since day one. And what do you make of Elon and Tesla? Has has his you know, efforts at Twitter changed your view of Tesla as a company, as a stock, and Elon as, as an owner?
3: Look, I mean, I think it's been a circus show, you know, as, as we've all seen. And I think there was a view as a Tesla holder that once Musk finally bought Twitter, and ultimately he was forced into it because he knew legally he was going to have to own it one way or another that it would start to die down in terms of just this horror show that continues to play out. But instead it hasn't, right? I mean, since he's bought it, it's kind of been a train wreck situation. He's trying to turn around, you know, what's really been a treadmill stock and company for years. He's not someone culturally that's going to be playing ping pong in the Twitter cafeteria or, you know, doing parties on the rooftop. And I think now as a Tesla investor, You want to see him give reins to others that ultimately could operate social media. Because in terms of Tesla, forget the selling of the stock. Musk is the gold standard. That's why Tesla trades where it is. There's key man risk, we'll call it. You don't want to see his attention focused too much Mm -hmm. on Twitter. Because it comes down to, he has diamonds on one hand and Tesla. Is $2 slice of New York pizza on the other, which is Twitter. <laughs> and I think that's the frustration for Tesla investors.
4: Well, okay, let's go into then the social media space a little bit more then. I've wondered if this uh, potential bankruptcy or decline that you're seeing in Twitter, does that then create some sort of tailwind for the likes of Meta, for example?
3: Well, I think right now, I mean, all those ships are going down, right? So it's one where there could be some life rafts here and there. But look, social media is that the best growth is in the rearview mirror. And that's why Zuckerberg ultimately, once Apple IOS came out with Cook and the shot across the bow, I think Zuckerberg and Facebook knew, okay, like clock struck midnight. It was basically time that they were going to have to transform the business model. Are you I calling think, the
4: death of social media?
3: I think what's happened is is that it's a, it's a maturity of social media. Okay. And that's really what's happened is that... How do you monetize? I think the problem for Musk, someone that basically has created rockets and electric vehicles, he goes into Twitter and he's like, we got 240 million users. Engagement, as we all know, is extremely high. How do you monetize it? That's been the problem for Twitter. They need to monetize it. And again, they were spending money like
1: 1980s rock stars. So they (laughs) needed to cut costs. That was clear. And now it's about can right. you turn around? Penn State's playing at Rutgers this weekend. I think I'm going to get some tickets and go, Dan. We are. We are. are you going? Okay. Yeah. All right. So I think I might join you there. Uh, and we got Mandeep Singh. he does all this tech stuff for Bloomberg Intelligence. Mandeep, I want to start with you. Meta. When I was a kid, it was Facebook. Okay. It was a <laughs> phenomenal growth story. It had so many revenue growth levers to pull, whether it's Facebook or the gram, as kids call it, or WhatsApp or Messenger. This stock can't buy a friend right here. What's the call in Meta right here?
5: Well, so clearly they have a lot of headwinds from Apple, like changes that they made and you know the ad pricing impact uh, that had on Meta. But the biggest one is, what are they doing with Reality Labs and how long are they gonna spend? So even though they announced the job cuts and that actually did help the stock, it's still not clear you know what is the end game there when will there be commercial success what kind of revenue growth can reality labs generate because in terms of the install base and unit sales that's trending down and still meta is talking about losing almost 15 billion dollars on reality labs next year
1: (laughs) so how am i supposed to buy a stock when the top line revenue growth is slowing and these expenses on this business i don't even understand Are going up dramatically.
5: Is that kind of what investors are saying? Well, if they start winning against TikTok or TikTok gets banned in the US, that will certainly be a big Uh, catalyst uh, for the stock as well as for their growth. Because think of it this way if you are an advertiser who wants to spend their ad dollars, there are only so many places you can go to, whether it's Google search or Meta or TikTok or Snap or Pinterest. So there are only a handful of platforms. And if TikTok goes out of the equation, that will certainly be a boost for Meta Reels. Uh, That's the other big investment they're making.
4: Well, hop on in here, Dan, and talk to us a little bit about the ripple effect from Meta specifically. You've seen a little bit of tailwinds going to NVIDIA, Advanced Micro Devices, this idea that if Facebook, now Meta, is going to power the Metaverse, you need the chips to do it. Is that a logical tailwind? Is that a sustainable tailwind for some of these other big tech players?
3: Yeah, I don't think it is. Look, I think Zuckerberg, it's sort of been a Ted Striker from the movie Airplane Situation. <laughs> and I think that's, you know, you go back to that last conference call, investors have really, you know, the patience is one thing. Because I think in terms of the metaverse strategy in this type of market, that's not what you want to see. That's why they had to cut back the cost. And I think ultimately are going to have to do more and more of a U-turn in terms of metaverse. Facebook, look, as a stock, you know, we'd be more cautious on it just because right now you, you feel like from a social media perspective, you want to see them double down there. Still massive headwinds, you know, as we talked about in terms of what we see with Apple iOS.
1: All right, let's go to Apple because I need your call. Dan, you've been one of the most vocal uh, analysts on Apple here. Um, It's only down 16% year-to-date, so it's beating the S&P. It's way beating the NASDAQ here, so it feels like kind of a safe port in in a storm here. What's the What are the growth stories for this one going forward? Do I have to wait for the next cool phone, or what's the story?
3: It's a rock of Gibraltar stock. And, and I think the haters continue to hate. They'll yell fire in a crowd theater every quarter, yet look with demand. I was held up, and I think if you look at the services business, that continues to play out, and I think we have a reacceleration going into next year. Look, in macro, it's going to hit everyone, including Apple, and, of course, supply chain's an issue. But I believe it's very negative out there in terms of from an investor perspective and i believe numbers the deck's been cleared and i think this is a stock that continues to move higher as we go in the next six to nine months that's why in tech apple microsoft you know continue to be our favorite names
4: Mindy, you've been a real expert on cloud and the switch to cloud will apple ever enter that game
5: no, they will always be a consumer-focused company, and look, they will keep building the back-end uh, back infrastructure in terms of supporting the services revenue that Dan was talking about, but uh, Apple is not an enterprise uh, sales company. You know, they will continue to focus on devices, and I think they will enter the VR market as well. They will launch a headset that could drive the next leg of growth. Like, look at what AirPods have done in a span of, you know, three, four years. So, uh, but I, I, I do think they will always be consumer focused. Indy, yeah. I know you
1: and the tech team at Bloomberg Intelligence kind of look at the industry as a whole as well. Talk to us about tech spending in the last couple of years and what it might look like in a kind of recessionary environment maybe for the next year or so.
5: Yes so we definitely were in a above historical growth rate environment when it comes to tech spending and uh, we probably pulled forward some of the data center spend over the last couple of years given everyone was talking about digital transformation yep. and you know the shifting workloads to cloud but still i think you know when it comes to it spending you break it apart into software and services it will still be high single digits. Yes, semiconductor is more cyclical, so the hardware and semiconductor component will slow down, but overall tech spending will continue to be, you know, at least uh, two times GDP.
1: Yeah, I'm sticking with it, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's been good for me for the last 12 years, don't you think, I mean, uh, you know, so.
5: You know, when you were a kid. Yeah,
1: exactly, (laughs) exactly. All right, Mandeep Singh, Bloomberg Intelligence Tech Analyst, Dan Ives, Wedbush Securities, uh, covering all things on the TMT space uh, for Wedbush. We appreciate them coming into the studio. Roundtabling a couple segments here, talking about tech. Um, It's going to continue to be uh, a solid growth story uh, going forward.
6: Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients.
1: Bitcoin, pretty. I mean, finally getting a little bit of stability here. It's up about a four tenths of one percent here, sixteen thousand five ninety. But the world of crypto. I mean, you talk about the crypto winter, okay? Yeah. I guess the asset class a little bit out of, out of favor is what I take sure. from the term crypto winter. But then we got FTX blowing up. This is like the Nasdaq saying we're going out of business. Yeah. This is crazy, and it, it is an ever ever changing story on a, di- a daily, and hourly, a minute basis. And Bloomberg's got some great great reporting. Uh, and on this uh, story, and uh, part of that reporting team is Annie Massa. She's an investigating reporter, investing reporter for Bloomberg News. She joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio. She's not mailing in, phoning it in. She's in the studio. Annie, that is office. a gold star That's for Paul. That's right. You know, what? You in, star, in, studio. I'm in the office. There you <laughs> go. Yes, exactly. So, Annie, uh, this Sam Bankman-Fried guy. What do we know about him, and what kind of happened here?
8: We know a lot about him. We've all been very exposed to Sam Bankman-Fried over the past year or two years. But what is coming to light is that he's a totally different kind of person than many people really thought. In the bankruptcy documents that um, came out today, there is a trove of information about how he ran FTX and his affiliated hedge fund, Alameda uh, Alameda Research, and how there was... No, there was no internal system, no controls, mm. and actually a, a pretty flagrant um, sense of—I uh, mean, it, it's, it goes beyond lack of oversight to to really irresponsibility.
1: Is there anybody talking fraud at this point?
8: Uh, that's that's a big suspicion. I mean, when when you talk to people in the industry, they're like, "Yeah, this guy's going to jail," okay. <laughs> but I mean, who's to say? Like, it's still playing out, but there's. Uh, there's certainly not a good feeling about I mean, what's next.
4: Well, I, I think one of the issues in crypto broadly has been the story of credibility. It's mm-hmm. almost an experiment that's taking place in crypto that we've seen in other markets, in the bond market, in the equity market as well. The new FTX CEO saying there's a complete failure of corporate controls. How does a company like FTX, for example, regain some of the credibility you see in, say, the equity markets?
8: Yeah, I mean, I just want to underscore what you just said. The the man overseeing the bankruptcy of FTX and its affiliated entities oversaw the Enron bankruptcy. And this is a guy who said, I have never in my career seen such a lack of trustworthy financial information um, and complete lack of corporate control. So even he is shaken to his core, Mm. as far as I can tell, and says throughout the document that some of the financial information provided to him, anything provided to him while the company was under Sam Bankman-Fried, he doesn't even necessarily trust.
1: Sam Bankman-Fried, I I just wonder, why is he not sitting in an FBI office in Washington or in New York? (laughs) Why is he, I mean, he's the center of all this, and there are billions of dollars that have been lost. Why is he still hanging out in the Bahamas. A great <laughs> question
8: for re- <laughs> regulators when they come on the right. show next time. But um, it, it's it's true. So um, he's been questioned by um, authorities in the Bahamas. And I think it, it speaks to why was he in the Bahamas in the first place, right? It was no secret that he based his business in the Bahamas. Both of these businesses, by the way, Alameda and FTX. Yeah. And, you know, this is a guy who ran these companies. You know, Alameda started in no surprise, Alameda County in California, mm-hmm. then moved to Hong Kong, then moved to the Bahamas. It's like, why did this corporate entity have to hop around the world to the Caribbean, uh, ultimately, to uh, to survive? It, so, I mean, clearly he was trying to stay out of the reaches of U.S. authorities. We know now.
4: I mean, but we see this now. Right. In retrospect, hindsight is always 2020. 20, but I, I have to. For, for the viewers who or listeners, I should say, who aren't as familiar with the rise of Sam Bankman fried how did FTX get so big so quickly?
8: Yeah. Um, well, it's a good point because, uh, or it's a good question, because FTX hasn't been around that long. It was the yeah. second largest crypto exchange before the bankruptcy, but it's not that old. Um, Alameda started, it, for, first of all, I want to underscore that Alameda started first. Alameda started as his crypto trading hedge fund in 2017. FTX emerged as an offshoot of that in 2019 oh, interesting. Okay? okay so we're talking just a few years this this company rises to be the second largest player in all of crypto in the world how did that happen well he was a master manipulator but knew how to access people he knew how to get people on the platform and he uh and he put ads like he got all this VC backing he was able to charm VCs Raise two billion dollars, right? You can you can throw your weight around with that kind of uh, money, and we all saw the Super Bowl commercials. Um, you know, FTX plastered on the sides of stadiums. He knew how to get in front of retail investors, and I think it started this cycle, this like flywheel almost, where um, once the VCs saw all the people on trading on the FTX platform, then they're like, Hey, wait a minute! Like everybody else is, you know, in this investment. Why am I not? And it snowballed from there.
1: Binance, they seem to be. I guess the winners here and their founders, CZ, I just know him by his, I'm not sure his name. Um, They seem to be the winner here. Is anybody looking at them? Because I know they sold some Bitcoin, I guess last weekend, which would have been, or maybe the weekend before, which kind of accelerated the demise of the FTX platform. Is anybody looking at them in any way, shape or form, or are they just the winners here?
8: I would be cautious to say there are any winners in this story, at least now, because, It is hard to overstate how seismic this event has been in the cryptocurrency industry. Yeah,
1: we've spoken to CEOs of other entities within the crypto space, and they are shaken to their core. They're almost, they can't believe this happened because Sam Bankman-Fried was, if nothing else, the savior of the industry. He was the the voice and face to Washington, D.C., in terms of creating credibility.
8: It's a highly destabilizing event, and there's been a huge loss of trust in the space. Mm. So we'll see what emerges from this, but I'm not declaring any winners at this point.
4: I'm still shocked that, and Paul made this point, I believe earlier, is that crypto is actually still 16,000. looking at Bitcoin at a level of uh, 16,000, 515-ish, we'll call it at the moment. Um, I'm surprised that there isn't an even bigger reaction to a collapse of the second largest crypto exchange, because if you saw that and say, the equity market there would definitely be a massive collapse and um, crypto I felt like was a growing um, entity you've covered exchanges you've covered asset managers Uh, do you think it could get worse from here
8: I think it absolutely can and will get worse from here I think that we're we're still kind of waiting to see the full effects um, of what will happen this is going to have ripple effects in the crypto lending space. It already is. Um, it, the, the effects are going to ripple out from here. Um, to your point about Bitcoin, uh, it's interesting. Bitcoin, I mean, crypto gets all lumped together, right? But but Bitcoin is different from some of these like fantasy land tokens that were just being minted right. by FTX. So it's seen as more of like an, a safer uh, bet among the people. Hey, Annie, I
1: need a final for my poker table. Are you available?
8: <laughs> uh, are you serious?
1: You play poker?
8: I, I sure do, yeah. With, uh does can bomb here if you know she's a champion.
1: She's a champion? She's
4: a champion. Oh my I god. Heard. So Thank god. if
1: we had brought you in, you would have cleaned us out, is what you're telling us? I mean, Probably. not necessarily. <laughs> (laughs) 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 all right i didn't know that thank you very much that's interesting all right annie mass investing reporter poker player for bloomberg news and we appreciate her bringing us some of her reporting chops here on this whole ftx story and crypto ever evolving we know that the consumer it's about 70 percent of the u.s economy it's pretty big so bloomberg intelligence which is the research arm of bloomberg lp We allocate a lot of top resources to covering retail and the consumer. We've got Poonam Goyle, she covers retail. Jen Bartash covers retail. Lindsay Dutch also covers uh, retail. We've got Lindsay here on the line to give us a sense of what's going on out there with the retail space and the consumer. And she has um, her BS in math from Lafayette College. She's a leopard. Did you know that? The Lafayette <laughs> she's Leopards. also
4: a mathematician, allegedly. Yeah, yeah,
1: who does that? I'm B.S. in math at Lafayette College. I mean, I mean, I would not go up to Lindsay at a cocktail party. I am mean, a math person? Well, I don't think she's gonna,
4: like, come out with formulas and formulas, equations no? okay. as a small talk.
1: <laughs> hey, Lindsay, thanks so much for joining us here. The, of the retail companies you cover, what have you been seeing here over, you know, this quarter? What are they telling you about the consumer, about recession, all that kind of stuff?
9: Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me. Um, My focus is on the hard lines and we haven't had too many report, but there is sort of, you know, a common thread that I'm seeing sort of across my space and some of the other retailers is, you know, obviously, you know, the consumers are focused on value. They're very price sensitive and that is driving an extremely promotional environment for these retailers heading into the key fourth quarter, you know, we see that with Bath and Body Works. Um, and I think that the other thing is a like, managing inventory. These retailers are don't want to get over inventoried. Some of them already are there. And that's also really driving these promotions. Um, And we expect them to continue and be elevated in the fourth quarter. Yeah,
1: you mentioned Bath & Body Works. and stocks up 19% today. I mean, this is a big company, eight and a half billion dollar market cap. Tell us what happened with their their numbers.
9: Yeah, so they basically beat from the top to the bottom line um, with results and they raised their outlook for the year. After they sort of drastically cut it back in July, when everyone started really questioning what was going on with the consumer and and where the pullbacks were gonna be. And Bath & Body really does sell discretionary items. So, you know, the gut feel, you know, the initial reaction might be like that they would be severely hurt in this environment, but I think their results really show how loyal their following is and their customers, uh, really go to their products as sort of staple items especially for the the key holiday season um they they use them as gifts you know people incorporate their their products their candles or body care into you know their holiday season so i do think Um, you know, the results were great, but it also demonstrates the future with this company and the growth potential that they have with this loyal base.
4: What does that then mean for this divergence that I feel like a lot of people expected to narrow a little bit between perhaps some of the luxury shoppers and then some of the, uh, not luxury shoppers for lack of a better term. But essentially what I'm referring to is this kind of divergence you saw in Macy's versus Kohl's in, um, even Walmart versus Target, arguably. What are the share shifts that are happening in this space?
9: So for Bath & Body Works, their customer base, you know, really does align pretty well with, you know, the demographics across the U.S. nationally. So they have some high-income shoppers and they have some low-income shoppers and you know they consider their product sort of affordable luxury um if you will um but i think again it comes back to my point of you would kind of expect you know if people are going to cut back and people are cutting back you know cutting back on body lotion or sprays seems like an obvious thing right you may not need that item but i think you know people are very focused on self-care and these items are important to them and they're basically willing to spend on them Um, but the one thing we did see is they do want a deal so so they want these products but they want a deal and i think that in the fourth quarter you know especially black friday cyber monday you know some of the deals are going to be very very good and i think You know, where there was some pullback and that lower income consumer in the third quarter, I think we're going to see some transactions from that customer because they want the items. They're going to come into the store and they're going to stock up when the price is low.
1: So Lindsay, for the companies you cover in retail, are shoppers coming back to the store or are they still just clicking from their couch?
9: So. Um, you know, since stores sort of started reopening in 2021, you know, we've seen a resurgence of brick and mortar, right? The, the storefront is essential to drawing people um, to buy your products. Um, and we are seeing people back in the stores. I think, you know, Black Friday uh, is going to look a lot more like pre-pandemic, Um where you know people are waiting a little bit to do their shopping and i think they are going to go in person to these stores and explore the products um and and try to take advantage of the deals that are there
1: not me i'm sitting on the couch and i'm clicking if i can't buy with my (laughs) phone it ain't happening lindsay thank you so much uh, for joining us appreciate it lindsay dutch she's uh, an analyst at bloomberg intelligence she covers lots of things but she really uh, does a great job on the retail space we've got a strong team there at bloomberg intelligence because A, there's a lot of companies out there in the retail space uh, and B, the consumer is such a big part uh, of this economy. And it's interesting to see how the consumer uh, is faring here with high inflation, uh, a pending uh, recession. Yet the retail sales numbers we saw come out were pretty darn good. Um, So we'll have to keep on top of that. We need to get the latest on Ukraine. Uh, this is a fluid situation, of course, uh, but we need uh, to speak to some experts and get the real uh, uh, sense of what's going on there. We do that right now with Dr. Ariel Cohen. He's a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council Eurasia Center. Uh, he also served as a senior research fellow in Russian and Eurasian Studies and in International Energy Policy at the Heritage Foundation. He's the author of six books. He's been doing this stuff a long time, folks. Um, Dr. Cohen, thanks so much for joining us here Boy, I guess I think about the last twenty-four or forty-eight hours, it seems like the world kind of dodged a bullet, if you will, in that this missile strike in Poland, you know, perhaps was not a premeditated act on the part of Russia, but boy, it just highlights how risky things are over there and maybe potentially getting even worse. What's your current state of affairs over there?
7: Absolutely. Uh this is probably the worst deterioration uh in uh, the global security field since the cuban missile crisis but the cuban missile crisis was resolved quickly both the u.s and the soviet union did not want a nuclear war here it's different because vladimir putin deliberately threatened the use of tactical nuclear weapons in ukraine and wanted the world to uh walk him back from the break and he really really wanted attention he got it uh, now it looks like China and India a sort of distancing in different ways but distancing uh, themselves from Russia including in the recent G20 summit um, chairman C uh, who just won the power struggle in Beijing uh, was very careful not to criticize Russia directly but the statement about the necessity to avoid a nuclear war was there, front and center. Of course, Russia said they are against the nuclear war as well. Uh, but what you see here is a prolonged, protracted conflict in Ukraine. Russia thinks that time is on its side because it has more human resources and a greater uh, uh, industrial capacity, whereas uh, the Moscow uh, power circle think that uh, the West will lose interest. Uh, they hoped that the Republicans uh, would win both houses and mistakenly, in my opinion, uh, thought that the Republicans will not support Ukraine. Uh, and with the exception of some fringe figures who got reelected recently, uh, the majority of the Republican Party or Republican voters do support our uh, aid uh, to uh, the struggle of the Ukrainian people for their freedom.
4: So put this into some perspective for us when it comes to the situation with Poland at the moment. I believe the investigation is still ongoing in terms of, uh, I believe, what is being called a stray missile that then hit uh, Polish territory. And I should add NATO territory as well. President Biden's been very vocal about saying uh, any inch of NATO, the United States will, of course, go to defend there are historical dynamics between Poland, Ukraine, and then Poland, Russia. Highlight to our audience why that's so important.
7: Uh, the missile uh, fell uh, in the Polish territory close to the Ukrainian border. Um, the missile appeared, two missiles appeared to be, uh, at this moment, the Ukrainian anti-aircraft missiles uh, that uh, hit uh, a Russian um uh, missile that was flying uh towards um a Ukrainian uh target probably an energy uh target and uh president biden said that because russia started this war uh the ultimate responsibility is with russia two people were killed in poland uh for a moment it looked the, like a russian uh strike against polish territory that would of course escalate this war uh to a whole new level but looks like, thankfully, this is not the case, and we very much hope that this is not uh, going to be uh, a step uh, in escalation. But the escalation is deliberate Russian destruction of the Ukrainian energy infrastructure, in which hundreds of thousands of civilians remain without electricity and heat in the middle of the war, so the Russians are trying to break uh, the spirit of resistance in Ukraine.
1: Dr. Cohen, You know, we're now many months into this war in Ukraine. We're coming upon, you know, uh, the winter season uh, in that part of the world. Based upon your experience, how do you think this war resolves itself? How do you how do you think it plays out and maybe over what time frame?
7: Uh, I think we are going to see fighting in winter, which is brutal. Um, It will get into Uh, the negative uh, 10s and 20s occasionally there, uh, or the thaw may be uh, freezing, uh, but it's still uh, December through March uh, is quite nasty. Then there'll be a a little hiatus uh, when the mud season strikes, uh, late March, early April, and then into the summer. So I, I see probably close to another year unless something major happens. Look. Russian history teaches us that every Tsar, every ruler that loses a war, loses power. And Mr. Putin is a great student of Russian history. He knows he will not be an exception.
1: All right, Dr. Ariel Cohen, thank you so much for joining us there. We appreciate getting uh, your thoughts and your perspective. Dr. Ariel Cohen, he's a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council Eurasia Center, uh, getting the latest on the fighting in, in Ukraine. And as Dr. Cohen was saying, pretty, it doesn't seem to be any resolution in sight at this point.
4: Yeah, and even uh, I believe the Joint Chief of Staff, the Pentagon, yesterday is talking about, well, the timeline is going to extend certainly into the winter.
1: We've had a lot of retail data come out over the last week or so. We had some uh, retail sales uh, government figures came out a little bit better than expected. We've had uh, some pretty good earnings numbers from most of the retailers. Macy's today with some good numbers, stocks up uh, 12%. Um, so we're starting to see getting some decent figures of how the consumer is really faring, uh, to get some more color. We check in with Harley Finkelstein, president of Shopify, Shopify, uh, trades on the NASDAQ under the symbol S H O P. That makes sense. Uh, Harley, thanks so much for joining us here. Um, to tell us what's happening with your business here, because there is concern about the consumer as we potentially head into a recession
2: uh, over the next several quarters. Hey Paul. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, like I think the, uh, if the past few years have proven anything, it's that change is, is kind of the only constant in commerce in general. Um, but we're heading into, you know, the biggest shopping moments of the year. Um, and, and there are still some unknowns in, in, the, in the landscape. Uh, surveys are, are telling us that 80 percent of U.S. businesses are planning for a, a big Black Friday, Cyber Monday sales weekend. So that's that we think is really, really great. Um and one of the things that, you know, we're, we're seeing is that there, there are a couple of trends happening, uh, both, both for the consumer, but also for the merchant. And, and, uh, you know, if you compare it to last year, last year we saw about 47 million shoppers buying from Shopify brands over the four day weekend. Um, that felt like it was a vote with, with their wallets to support these amazing independent brands as opposed to go to department stores. Yep. And so we'll see what happens there, but peak sales last year were at $3.1 million per minute on Black Friday on Shopify. Wow. And uh, and for the weekend, we saw over six billion dollars sold on our platform. So we'll see what happens this year. But there's certainly some optimism in the in the air.
4: I heard that Shopify is building out their logistics arm, which is interesting. It's usually something we associate with Amazon, for example. Walk us through perhaps some of the challenges, or at least the vision for that.
2: Yeah, I mean, a, a couple things. I, I think uh, for the relationship that. Our merchants have, we have millions of merchants on our platform. Shopify is now about 10% of total e-commerce in the U.S. alone. Um, and, and so if you're a consumer and you're buying from a, from a great brand direct uh, on their online store, even offline store, and the experience is, 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 is wonderful, there's a really good chance Shopify is powering that experience. One of the things that we know that our merchants are looking for is, is they want us to help with more of their their retail uh, and, and their commerce issues. And so years ago, we introduced Shopify Payments to make it easier for them to accept payments. We then introduced things like Shopify Capital. We've now given up more than $4 billion worth of cash advances and loans to our merchants. And more recently, we introduced Shopify Fulfillment. And really, the idea is... So, because the consumers' expectations around fulfillment and shipping have been reset, we want to give every merchant that uses Shopify the same, effectively, the same ability to delight them with, you know, two-day affordable shipping, uh, and that, that the big retailers do. And we think we can do that with Shopify fulfillment. But it's not just about one particular product, whether it's fulfillment or payments or capital. The idea is we are becoming the most important piece of software that these millions of stores and merchants use. And and to do so, we, we really are, are transitioning from just being an e-commerce provider to being a retail operating system. And uh, I think a lot of our merchants would say that Shopify is their business for the most part.
1: Harley, talk to us about the, the, the pandemic over the last three years. A lot of folks, I think, have kind of suggested to me that maybe it's, that has pulled forward maybe you know five years of market share gains for e-commerce uh, forward. Um, a, do you do you agree with that? Do you think e-commerce will lose share as maybe people start going back to stores? How do you, how do you think about that? What are your merchants telling you?
2: Yeah, I mean it's, it's a great question. What the pandemic did was it, it certainly did pull forward some some acceleration in e-commerce penetration. Um, you know, uh, just, just, to be, just to be clear, um, the, the metric or the vector that most people are looking at is, is e-commerce penetration as a percentage of total retail. What happened during the pandemic is, if you, the equation is simple. The, the, the numerator is e-commerce sales. The denominator is total retail sales. When the pandemic hit, you saw two things happen. The numerator went up, of course, e-commerce went, was higher. But the denominator, you lost all physical retail. And so you saw this massive growth rate and now that we're settling back in sort of this you know post pandemic world what you are seeing is all the gains in e-commerce have have sustained we still have all those gains but the growth rate is now closer to what we saw in 2019 but on a much much higher base and so i think the macro uh, tailwinds of e-commerce is, is still very, very healthy. In fact, I, I, e-commerce will continue to grow over time. We're still sub-20% in the U.S., so a little bit less in Canada, a little bit more in the U.K., but e-commerce generally is still quite small, and there's a lot of room to grow. Now, the other thing I think that is, is becoming uh, apparent to, to us and, and certainly to the merchants that do Shopify, you know, uh, you know great brands, whether it's, uh, you know, Allbirds or it's Figs or it's Fashion Nova or Gymshark, uh, you know, uh, I have mentioned on, on the earnings call, Glossier is now a Shopify, Mattel, Spanx, <laughs> these incredible brands. use this. One of the things that we are seeing is that the future of retail is not just going to be online, nor is it going to be offline. There's sort of this talk about, is offline coming back? Well, of course and the reason is the future of retail is going to be all about consumer choice, and the brands that will be most successful. I just tweeted about this about an hour ago, but you know Kim Kardashian, her new skin line, uh, cosmetic line, oh you know, has a pop-up powered by Shopify, and so it's all coming together around e-commerce and commerce colliding and, and commerce being everywhere.
1: Yep, it certainly seems that is the case. Harley, thank you so much for joining us. We'll always appreciate getting uh, the latest from you on retail and on Shopify. Harley Finkelstein, he's the president at Shopify. Again, that is a NASDAQ-traded stock. You can type in SHOP. Go into your uh, Bloomberg terminal and you get <clears throat> all the latest there. $40 billion uh, market cap there. So, again, Black Friday coming up. Big for the retailers.
2: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973.
1: And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.